Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded podcast of Marine Corps University. Today we're discussing U.S. national security interests and American foreign policy in what will hopefully be a less tumultuous 2021. My guest today is Dr. Nadia Shadlow. Dr. Shadlow is currently a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. She joined Hudson back in 2018, following her time as Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategy on the National Security Council. Dr. Shadlow has also served as a senior program officer in the International Security and Foreign Policy Program of the Smith-Richardson Foundation, where she helped to identify strategic issues which warrant further attention from the U.S. policy community. She served on the Defense Policy Board from September 2006 to June 2009 and is a full member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Her articles have appeared in Parameters, The American Interest, The Wall Street Journal, Philanthropy, and several edited volumes. Dr. Shadlow holds a BA in Government and Soviet Studies from Cornell and an MA and PhD from Johns Hopkins SICE, which tells me that you have both mad language and quant skills. Dr. Shadlow, thank you so much for coming on our show. That's very generous, Becky. I wish I could say I had both, but <laughs> <laughs> such standards have increased. <laughs> Before we start our discussion, I glossed over most of your background. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your career trajectory and how that's uh, shaped your thinking on the intersection of national interest and foreign policy? Sure. Um, but before I do that, I do want to thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to be here today. I've enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts, not all. Um, and I think you do a really good job of taking the bigger strategic issues and applying them to how uh, how they affect the Marine Corps. And I think it's, it's a nice a nice balance. So thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you. We are delighted you're here. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I've been lucky to have had career experiences that have allowed me to understand or at least try to understand U.S. foreign policy and national security from a variety of perspectives, from the tactical, operational, and strategic in a way, although not really in that order. So as a grad student, I tried to understand some of the theoretical underpinnings, power in the world, realism, U.S. role in the world, the nature of order, concepts like unipolarity and multipolarity, frameworks for thinking about the world or theories, but not in a rigid sense. And, and grad school is useful for that. Then as a career civil servant, I, I served at the Defense Department early in my career. Um, I saw more of the tactical and the operational, which gave me, uh, it gave my experiences there, gave me insight into the understanding of cultures, you know, military culture, but also bureaucratic cultures, something that I'm sure your uh, listeners are accustomed to. And this helps to understand the challenges of implementation, which is critical, right? So you have the theoretical, but in order to implement it and to make things happen, uh, you really have to understand bureaucracies, cultures, organizations, sort of the tactical give and take of the day-to-day -day world, not to mention the interagency, which has its own culture, if you can say that. So uh, that actual on-the-ground experience was really important. Although having said that, it's not the same as, you know, a Marine's actual on-the-ground operational experience. But, it, you know, serving in the Pentagon gives you some sense of the tactical. Then I went back to the strategic. I worked for many years for a foundation that supported research and analysis. Uh, so for some of your listeners, they're probably aware of the think tank world, the Brookings, the Hudson Institutes, uh, CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies. All of these are think tanks and institutions 
uh, which need funding from outside sources. Um, some of that funding is from foundations. And um, it's an important part of our overall system of foreign policy and national security because we create the next generation of foreign policy analysts, mm -hmm. essentially, right? The think tanks grow the next generation of foreign policy analysts. In some ways, it's it's um, you know akin to the way the military grows its officer corps or its soldiers. <laughs> That's sort of what the think tank world does for the national security community. So I got to see the world from the strategic sense against what are the important issues, where should we put our funding, what are the likely problems, challenges, and opportunities for the United States. And then in my last role in government, uh, I had a mixture of operational and strategic. I uh, played a key role in helping to build the 2017 national security strategy, and that involved capturing key strategic challenges and opportunities for our country. And also, um, there was a need to figure out how to get things done, not only the national security strategy in a short amount of time, we had about nine months, but also how do you set the foundations for the steps to actually implement mm -hmm. what it said. So. I've been lucky uh, in some senses. I think it's been an interdisciplinary background and I've enjoyed it. So thank you. Well, that's great. And I, I hope that we can tap into that experience through our conversation today so that our listeners uh, can have a deeper appreciation of, as you had identified, we've got the, the theoretical depth of knowledge that you bring from your research experience. We've got some of the bureaucratic depth of knowledge that you bring from having worked in government in different agencies in different capacities for so long. And then the combination of that and the culmination of actual U.S. policy in terms of the national security strategy or the cultivation development of a strategic document. And you say that NSS was written in nine months, which might sound like a long time to our listeners, but that is such a compressed period of time to work through an interagency process to build a, a fundamental document to guide U.S., not just military strategy, but all of U.S. national security strategy for years to come. Uh, that's incredibly ambitious. And I think anyone who's read the NSS would identify that as being uh, such an important document for where we are today in early 2021. And that is going to serve as my transition to the, the next question that I'm going to ask you, which is I'm going to be charitable and I'm going to characterize 2020 uh, as challenging. At Marine Corps University, we tell our students that we're teaching them how to think, not what to think, because the tactical and, and strategic environments change so quickly. The answer to the what is going to change with some speed and potential chaos and friction. So understanding the how to think is what prepares us to be adaptive, innovative leaders. What models and theories or frameworks have you found useful over the past year as we look back to the beginning of 2020 up until now, the beginning of 2021, to make sense of what's happening globally? And then the follow-on question to that is, how do we use those models, theories, frameworks to help think about positioning the United States to come out of the pandemic on a strong footing? Right. Not easy question. <laughs> yeah, sorry, jumping on the deep end. <laughs> I think how I'll put it is that I've been thinking about several imperatives over the past few years, and I'll identify three of them. And, you know, I don't have the answers really to any of them, but they've helped me think about what I, what I need to look forward to as well. So first, the imperative of rethinking some of the key illusions of the Cold War period. In a September Foreign Affairs article, I, I set forth these, what I call these four illusions from last September, it seems like ages ago, that I'll basically point out what they are. 
right now. The first illusion is that all countries are on the same trajectory toward liberal democracy. We had hoped for that during the Cold War period, uh, during the post-Cold War period, but I think we found, alas, that that was not the case. A second illusion was that we could depend upon international organizations or multilateral institutions to protect our interests. And that was related to the first, that if everyone is converging toward the same end, then these institutions can, in fact, be quite helpful. But what we found was that they were actually also areas of competition. A third illusion was that we would remain uncontested militarily, that we could get to where we wanted to go when we wanted to go, safely and quickly, that it was on our terms. And we found that that actually wasn't the case. And the final illusion was that digital technologies would be an unequivocal good. There was great hope in the early 2000s that, that digital technologies would allow democracies to flourish and would favor the individual. And we found that that actually might not be the case today. So I, I keep thinking about these illusions, what they mean and what they mean for today. And I think going forward, that framework, that imperative remains relevant. A second imperative that I've been thinking about is the need to think about strategy as a never-ending process, as a constant dialectic of action and reaction. Uh, many of your listeners understand this because of their backgrounds and their experiences and their training in, in military strategy, which is very much about these dialectics between offense and defense, mass and dispersion. But overall, I think we also have a tendency as a country and in the national security community to think about means, ways, and ends. And the emphasis is on ends. Uh, people want to see, you know, where's their money gone? They, they want to see that concrete end state. We need to step back and think about what it means for strategy to be in this constant dialectic, uh, a never-ending approach to strategy. Geopolitics is eternal. Geopolitics is never-ending. And I like to think about André Beaufre, a French strategist. He wrote that at its essence, strategy is about preserving freedom of action. And I really like that concept. I've been thinking and writing about that concept. And I think it's applicable to all of the different domains of strategy, which are interconnected. If you lose freedom of action or the ability to operate in one domain, you're likely today to lose it in another as well. So that's something that I'm thinking about going forward. And a third imperative that I've been thinking about and that I think also is relevant into the future is the imperative to redesign our processes for a new era. So not going back to the default of what we did five years ago, 10 years ago. We have to do better. We have to evaluate the processes we have in place and ensure that they actually produce outcomes. Um, what makes us think, for example, that after years of reform efforts in a particular institution, multilateral or even domestic, that this institution will do better if it actually has failed numerous times in the past and hasn't instituted any of the changes that you know a particular lessons learned study said that it should do. I was thinking about an analogy in, in the military. I mean, the military tries not to put up with years of failure before finding a new way, right? You can't do that. I mean, lives are at stake. Mm -hmm. So certainly our military is an imperfect institution, um, but I think it does better to try to reform more quickly in certain areas because of what's at stake. But at the national or international level, it's different. It can be decades of failure and money is still poured into institutions. Processes are still sort of adhere to. So I think it's it's critical that we really focus more on outcomes going forward. And, you know, related to that, 
a whole of government. This is, is this a process? What is it? It's one of the most overused terms in Washington, but it's, it's not producing outcomes that we want quickly, effectively, often, right? So we need to rethink these processes. You know, it's interesting. I don't remember who wrote this, and it was a number of years ago that I read it, but it was a critique of U.S. foreign policy that indicated that part of America's frustration, specifically in the Middle East, was that the United States is focused on success and mission accomplishment. And when do we identify that we have succeeded and won a war? And the pushback for this particular author, and I apologize that I don't remember their name, but their perspective was it's not about winning, it's not about success, it's about effectively managing conflict for decades. That it's a an overly optimistic assumption that we will win in certain conflict environments or that success is is a viable policy outcome given some of these intractable or enduring conflicts that we see across the globe, that successfully managing with an idea of mitigating a conflict or minimizing casualties or minimizing adverse consequences to U.S. national interest is the best outcome that we could hope for. And we do ourselves a disservice by overemphasizing success or accomplishment. I hear that in what you're talking about on this second imperative, that there's not a concrete endpoint to a strategy, that, that we can understand thinking in terms of ends because you have to for planning purposes and for budgeting purposes and for program assessment purposes, but it's just not realistic. That is a theoretical construct, not a realistic construct. Am I over interpreting what you're saying? No, I think your interpretation is balanced, I think, because it, it is a bit of balance. But at the level of grand strategy, there are always going to be these competitions that are going to unfold and continue at the political, military, and economic levels and, and the technological. Uh, so the idea that we can just sort of wrap up something and say, great, we've done it, I think um, does us a disservice, right? We need to think about the next phase of the competition. So more in an ongoing way. And it's not so much really even necessarily our, our, um, our military communities or our intelligence communities. Um, I think that's very relevant actually for the non-military and the non-intelligence communities to begin to think this way. Uh, for the State Department, for our development community, for you know the non-national security agencies, and how would this type of framework change the way that they see their problem sets or approach the opportunities in front of them? That's that's sort of what would interest me about it. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. And as we lay that on top of what we're looking at with a new year in 2021, are you identifying significantly different interests that the United States should be pursuing in light of these four imperatives that you laid out? Or is it simply that we need to adjust how we are going about securing these national interests? Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Uh, no, I think essentially America's interests remain the same and enduring. And every president really wants to protect the homeland, uh, improve and grow American prosperity, preserve peace through strength, and advance American values. Uh, so I set out the four pillars in the 2017 National Security Strategy, which were those. Um, but what president doesn't want to do those mm -hmm. things, right? right? But the difference is in how, right? And and that's where politics come in. That's where change of administrations come in, right? Uh, which is natural in a democracy. You're going to have a diversity of ideas about how to best accomplish uh, those four main national interests. 
How do you grow an economy? Do you reduce regulations and reduce taxes or do you increase taxes? Uh, you know, how do you preserve peace through strength? What kind of military forces do you need? What kind of force structure do you need? How do you create favorable regional balances of power? So that's where the different ideas come in in all of these areas. And I think, you know, we, we will see a different set of ideas going forward. Um, I think the Trump administration came in and had a different set of ideas in all of those areas. Uh, you know, not, not everything was different, but I think there was a different sense of a new sets of policies that were needed to ensure and advance, to protect and advance those interests. So I think going forward, it'll be interesting to see what changes and what doesn't. So as we look ahead over the next five, 10 years, moving away from this idea of of, a, of an end state or a slap the table success and move forward to something different, but how would we measure progress toward securing these national interests over the medium term? And again, I'm thinking five years, 10 years, because that's how we think fiscal year, I don't even know what the DP stands for, but the five-year planning cycles that we use in the military. What would give yeah. us some indicators that we're moving in the right direction? And then what would be some red flags to tell us that we need to, as a nation, not necessarily the military, uh, but that we need to rethink our approach? Well, I think I'd probably go back and think about two broad frameworks for this. And then within each, you you then will have your, your specific examples. So the first would be, have we created positive strategic alignments around the world in various domains, alignments that are better and, and, and more positive alignments than our rivals have? And can we sustain these alignments and how? So alignments in the political domain, have we strengthened alliances and partners, grown new partnerships? Um, alignments in the economic domain where countries want to work with us, trade with us, create uh, compatibility, create um, standards that favor us. Alignments in the military domain. Uh, are we working with new partners, doing better at those partnerships? That's what I mean by, by alignments. And there's an interesting strategist named Harold Rood, R-O-O-D, who wrote about this uh, a while ago, actually. And second, I would probably go back to Andre Beaufre uh, and ask the question of, do we have the freedom of action we need in those areas that I identified? Do we have the freedom of action militarily to go where we need to go when we need to go? Can we surge what we need to when we need to, right? And that goes to then, uh, that goes to a lot of the reshoring issues we're talking about. It's it's all interwoven. Do we have the, the freedom of action um, that we need to rely on allies and partners when we need them there to work with us? So I think thinking about uh, those two broad frameworks is helpful in evaluating outcomes and evaluating you know where we are. And then each of those actually offers a set of specifics underneath them. So, but I think these are broad enough frameworks for your listeners to think, oh, how does that apply to, you know, the problem sets that I'm looking at in the world? No, I think that's right. So I'm going to shift focus slightly, and I'm going to ask you what keeps you up at night? What should our listeners be thinking about, our students here at the university? What should we be thinking about that maybe we aren't? Well, besides uh, tossing and turning about everything uh, that I failed to get done on a particular day, <laughs> which is you which and is me both, <laughs> I wake up the next day, fail to get things done, and <laughs> toss and turn. Besides that, on a you know more serious note, on a domestic level, like so many others, I really am worried. It's not, a new, it's definitely not a new insight or a new worry, but I am worried about the divisions in this country, about families and friends that have been driven apart. 
you know, in a real way, often in a bitter way, by partisanship and partisan viewpoints. And uh, so I'm worried about that. Um, I'm worried about how little actual information and facts are often brought to bear and discussed because it's often arguments at the most superficial level with sort of stock phrases that no one asks the second and third order deeper questions about. Um, So it's a failure to see another person's point of view. And it's hard to to find a solution to that because the media absolutely feeds into that, right? It's so selective in what it reports and it reports with such bias on one side or the other that you're rarely seeing the rationale for these different points of view. Everyone caricatures the other side. And I think it's it's very destructive. And I'm not sure how we're going to get out of that mode. <laughs> so I am worried about that. Um, and I'm worried, you know, related to that, some of the persistent weaknesses we have domestically in terms of our school system and some of the foundations of kind of uh, what will help bring this country together and, and, um, and create more of a community. Uh, internationally, you know, I'm worried about some of the points um, we've talked about a bit in the podcast about great power competition, but specifically sort of the geotechnical or geotechnology shifts underway about how technologies will have and are having a profound effect on our the nature of our political systems, the nature of strategy and military force, our culture, even our biology, right? Uh, Technology is really impacting geopolitics in all of these domains. And I don't think we have the answers yet. I'm not sure we will have an answer, right? Back to my prior point about that it's always an evolution. But I think it's it's complicated and and these issues are very complicated and trying to understand them better actually presents a a good set of resolutions for all of us in in 2021. At least that's that's one of of mine. It's interesting. I was talking to the students at the Command and Staff College yesterday, and it was a lecture on the just war theory. But but in the discussion, uh, I made the point that the just war tradition lags behind human behavior. And so when we have debates about what is moral or immoral in warfare, those understandings came in the past. And the questions that we're confronting today in terms of artificial intelligence or the role of uh, civilians in different capacities and when they may or might not be targetable morally, that's a separate question from when it might be permissible under international law or rules of engagement. But but there's a lag between we, when we confront these challenges as people and as a nation and when our collective understanding and norms and sense of right and wrong and best practice catches up. And so I'm, I'm hearing that a bit in what you're talking about today, that we have these issues that we're grappling with, that it's not like we're uh, in a, a Wiley Coyote video and there's a very clear sign pointing us in a particular direction that we should go, that we're taking steps forward and we're reassessing and then maybe we're moving sideways and reassessing. And all of this feeds into a collective kind of meta discussion of what is best for the nation And part of the domestic challenge today, to feed back into your first point, is that that domestic discussion, which maybe 20 years ago was perhaps more polite, but more open, today people are not as open to having these frank discussions. It seems as though the public debate is more about scoring points or making points and being proven right rather than learning through the process. Is that a a fair characterization? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure, um, partly. I mean, I do wonder sometimes. I mean, in the past, uh, there were, you know, the 1960s, 70s, there were periods yeah. in this country <laughs> of great dissension. Sure. But I think the, the social media platforms weren't there. So you saw them, you, you saw them in diff- fundamentally different ways, right? So there were real disagreements, but they were being played out in different ways and not as uh, on this open sort of Twitter stage where there are immediate responses, also where people don't even have or or don't even seek opportunities to think before they tweet. They just, (laughs) so emotional. Um, So I think it's playing out in a different way, which is affecting the actual foundations of the problem as well, right? It all feeds on itself as well. Mm. And, you know, to your point, though, I mean, there are different fields of of thinking, like the ethics of artificial intelligence uh, didn't exist, you know, years and years ago, at least not to the degree today, where you actually even have, I think, degree programs now at schools or minors or majors in, in the topic. So they're, they're entirely new topics, which, which is good because it, it's forcing us. It, it's one way toward changing and figuring out if what we have in place are the right sets of processes and institutions to work on these problem sets. Right. Yeah. And to get back to your point that what we want to do is maintain decision space or maintain flexibility, the more right. we can think ahead of issues and problems particularly on these areas where we don't have great historical depth on a particular subject like AI or deep fakes for one that's that's come up in the past couple of years, the more we can think out ahead of it and the more that our technology can allow us to think out ahead of it, then that gives us flexibility relative to our adversaries, right? And the, to the extent that our adversaries are the ones who can think out ahead and their technology can push them and allow them to, to pull those threads and think out ahead, then that gives them that flexibility at our expense. Right. 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 Which is why I think akin akin to that is in in sort of the, the national security space, uh, you know, the concept of operating below the threshold mm-hmm. of kinetic conflict and hybrid war and operating in the space between war and peace is so important, because if you're not operating in that space, then your adversaries or rivals uh, who are are actually creating new status quos right They're They're kind of setting up brick by brick a new set of circumstances. And if you're not operating there, all of a sudden you turn around and say, gee, this wall has been built behind me and I have, I've lost some freedom of action here. Right. So that's why it's, it's so important. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, there's been sometimes a debate, does hybrid war have value? Do these concepts have value? And I absolutely think they do, even though we might not agree on the terms. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly if you are stuck in a reactive mode, you have less flexibility than the individual who is able to show initiative. Right. Exactly. And set the conditions for the reaction. Yeah. So we are very grateful that you came to us virtually recently and and spoke to the entire MCU student body and population. That was an hour plus discussion. And so we're not going to recap it in its entirety here in this podcast. But can you give our listeners just the highlights or what you think were the critical take homes? Uh, sure. I mean, I think I actually talked about a lot of the same mm-hmm. points in, in, you know, in what we've discussed um, this afternoon, uh, essentially thinking about strategy in a different way. Uh, I spoke about the process of building the NSS, and I find that probably the only <laughs> the only audience that's interested, interested in process is kind of the DOD, national security or foreign policy community. They care about process. Most, most outsiders don't care about process in terms of the NSS, you know, because it's our community and our, our group of professionals here. So I spoke about that a little bit because it was done uh, in such a short amount of time. And I think the key to that was having autonomy 
and authority over the process to drive it. Another key element was having essentially um, an interagency agreement that it was important to get it done as well. So I had the support of the Defense Department. Um, you know, we had a collaborative relationship uh, with most of the other departments as well, which was helpful. So you didn't have institutional actors seeking to block things or create problems. I think also, you know, the importance of understanding that I took a coalition building approach, kind of a, a leadership by coalition building, so that you're creating pockets of people around the bureaucracy who are supportive, who want to contribute, you're seeking their contributions, um, so that in a sense, you know, it was an open process. But it didn't actually have leaks, which at the you know, which is pretty significant because the past four years there were an awful lot of leaks. And mm -hmm. I think the fact is people felt that they had buy-in and were able to contribute to the process and were being heard. That doesn't mean that they were happy with every decision that was made, but it means that they felt that they got a fair hearing. And I think I think that's a fair characterization. So those are some of the issues um, that I talked about in my formal remarks. That's great. Thank you for that recap. And then our last question, same question we ask all of our guests, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Well, I'm reading, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading a couple of different things. I guess maybe that's why I'm tossing and turning because I'm not <laughs> completing, completing anything. Um, but I generally have found uh, later in life that I read a few books simultaneously, you know, depending on the mood that you're in. I'm reading a biography of Margaret Thatcher uh, by Charles Moore, which is wonderful. But since it's 900 pages long, um, in order to make myself feel like I'm actually making progress on something, I have a couple of other shorter books underway. But the point about a biography is that I've decided this year I want to read more biographies. It's just a good way to learn history, you know, good, good biographies. Um, it's a great way to learn history. It's a great way uh, to really understand the struggles of leadership of tough decisions that political leaders need to undertake or, or need to make. And uh, that helps us have some empathy, right, which we need overall more of um, in our day-to-day -day world. So um, I'm going to line up a few biographies once I finish this 900-page one, although that's just volume one. So come back to oh, me Oh, my goodness. Year. I don't think my entire um, life would fill one 900-page volume. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. <laughs> But I've also picked up um, Michael Oslin's book, Asia's New Geopolitics, which is a great book of shorter essays that he's written over the years. He's a great analyst of the Indo-Pacific region, and it's a great way to do a deep dive into some of the particular themes um, related to that region. And I'm also reading Ike Freeman's book, One Belt, One Road. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a much more in-depth look at what China really means by One Belt, One Road, known as Obor. Dr. Shadlow, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of Marine Corps University, follow us on social media at at Marine Corps U. Special thanks to our intrepid producer, Jen Pacha Howell. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded, innovative podcast of Marine Corps University. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.